Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Good morning. What a joy to be together this morning. I am so excited. Uh, well, about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, small groups. All right, I'm the I'm the small groups guy. Okay, and uh, I wasn't. I didn't really ask to be the small groups guy. I didn't really volunteer to be the small groups. I just got told I was the small groups guy. But I am embracing this role fully. Okay, and I am very excited because we have three new small groups starting today. And my hope is that they will not be small small groups. Okay, I just want the new small groups to be overwhelmed, and then you know at at staff meeting and elder meeting, we'll just be like, what are we going to do? We have so many people. We need to start more small groups. And then I'll be calling you and, you know, trying to get you to let people like come to your house and meet and whatever. All right. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to uh, embrace this with me. Okay. We have uh, new groups that are open. We have some groups that have already been in existence that have room for more people. We have sign up sheets in the foyer. And uh, so come talk to us in the foyer, stop by the, the table and, uh, if you sign up for small groups today, you will get a free t-shirt <laughs> and free coffee when the coffee shop... No, that's, that's not... <laughs> Listen, we, we want to grow together. We want to build one another up. We want to set aside this day of the week for the Lord and, and His people. And uh, so I just encourage you, grab one of these uh, uh, flyers that's, that's at the table back there. It's got a list of all the, the small groups and contact information, all of those things. And uh, just uh, make a, a commitment to do that if you're not already. We'll go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. This is the other thing that I'm very excited about, is to begin our journey in the Gospel of John. I, I was talking to my daughter earlier in the week, and uh, she was asking about a church on Sunday and asking about my message. I don't know. She's just trying to be polite, I guess. I don't know why you, you know, ask your dad about his sermon unless you want to get a really, have a really long conversation. Uh, but I, I told her, I said, there's no sermon. There's no sermon this week. She said, no sermon? I said, no, there's just uh, two commercials. She said, what, what are you talking about? I said, well, the first commercial is for the book of John, and the second commercial is for Jesus. Okay, so that's the, that's the two kind of messages this morning. It's just two commercials because these are the things that I'm excited and passionate about. And so this morning is a little bit of a, of a pep rally to get us excited about our journey into the Gospel of John. And listen, if you love the Word of God and you love the God of the Word, you will be as excited as I am about what lies ahead. And so before we, we jump into the text of the first five verses this morning, I just want to lay a, a little bit of groundwork, and I'm going to ask you to just kind of track with me if, if you can. This is going to be a little bit of an information dump, but I, I believe it will be profitable. If you get bored while I'm doing this little introduction, we'll just chalk it up to your bad attitude. And I mean, it was either that or my bad preaching, so you know, it's got to be your attitude, right? <laughs> and, and actually... I'll just tell you right now, okay, that, that as we're going through this, it's going to be rapid fire, okay, uh, partly for, for sake of time, but really, I, I'm not necessarily wanting you to get all of this in your notes or like, you know, memorize it all or anything like that, because this is just kind of a preview of coming attractions. So really, the, the whole point is just to kind of ramble off a whole bunch of things and say, this is where we're going, 
this is what we're going to do in the coming year. And hopefully you'll be as excited about that as I am. Uh, if you're the kind of person that can't stand the fact that there was something on a slide that wasn't on your paper, okay, you just see me afterwards. I'll make sure you get the notes. You can fill everything out, Corey. All right. That's my wife, right? She's like, my, actually, my daughter told me she's got the new little uh, journal, you know. She said there wasn't enough room. Said, well, that's good. That's the, that's the goal, to run out of room, right? So let's discuss the Gospel of John. And let's start with, uh, I guess, the easiest place to start, which is the author, okay? This, this should be really easy, right? I mean, it's, it's in the name, right? In fact, we just finished 1 John, and it's the, the same author, right? So John, who's the older brother of James, the, the son of Zebedee, Christ calls him the uh, John and James, the sons of thunder, best nickname in the Bible, okay? Uh, John is also the author of the book of Revelation and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and, and, and this gospel. And in this gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Does it endear you to John a little bit that Jesus gave him this like cool, manly, tough guy name, but, Jesus, but, but John prefers to be called the disciple whom Jesus loved? That's pretty neat, right? John is a man's man. He's a fisherman, fished in Galilee with his brother and with his father and with Peter and Andrew as partners. He's in the inner circle, right? We know this, Peter, James, and John. John is there on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there in Gethsemane to, to pray. He's at the cross when Jesus died. He's given care over Jesus' mother. The intimacy, the, the relationship between the Apostle John, the, the author of this gospel that we're going to study this year, and Jesus Christ is astounding. The Gospel of John is the, the fourth gospel. And when we think about the, the audience that the gospel is written to, right? He has this, this aim to reach a, a broad audience, a universal audience, really. Matthew's written for the Jews, right? Mark is, is to the Romans. Luke is for the Greeks. But John is calling the world to believe. In fact, we see the word world 78 times in the book of John. Think of some other, other key words that we're going to touch on. Again, just, just to kind of get us excited for where we're going. The word father in the gospel of John 121 times. Again, this idea of familial relationship, of closeness, belief, or believe 98 times. Over and over and over, we're going to be told deep doctrine, deep truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it's not just going to be left there. We're going to be challenged to take that truth and to embrace it by faith, to put action to what we're hearing, to believe. World, 78 times. I mentioned the word life, 52 times. Love, 47 times. Just these words get me excited. I think, okay, life, like that's what I need. I need, I need life. I need like energy. I need like purpose and direction, eternal life, love. Who doesn't want to talk about love more? So we're going to talk about love repeatedly. We're going to talk about the word, word, logos, right, 45 times starting today. And when we think about the main focus, the central idea, as we jump into the Gospel of John, John is going to tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who offers eternal life to all who believe in him. And that's going to be our focus over and over again. 
And if you've been saved by the message of the gospel, you'll never tire of hearing this glorious truth. And if you're not saved, and you're here with us as we go through the Gospel of John, if you've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're going to be here as we go through the Gospel of John, I'll just tell you now, we're gunning for you. And we're praying for you. And you're going to come face to face with the message of the glorious gospel and the person of Jesus Christ over and over again. And either your heart is going to be hardened as you continue to stiff arm these truths and and, and reject Jesus Christ. Or you're going to embrace these truths and you're going to come into true faith and belief. And some of the truths, some of the incredible things that you're going to see are these select miracles in the gospel of John. John doesn't have as many miracles as the other Gospels. He doesn't record as many, but he has these select miracles of water to wine in chapter 2 and healing the nobleman's son and healing the the lame man and feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing a blind man, raising Lazarus. And the one that I think is interesting because it seems like almost every commentary or every survey that I read talks about the seven miracles of the Gospel of John, but they leave out the greatest miracle, the ultimate miracle, his own resurrection in chapter 20. We're going to see what Christ says about himself. Who does Jesus Christ say he is? And we're going to see these I am declarations. When Christ says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I am the true vine. And the ultimate declaration is he declares his own deity, even in chapter 8, verse 58, when Christ says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is no coincidence, no slip of the tongue. They knew exactly what Jesus Christ was claiming as they took up rocks to stone him. And again, John's purpose in writing is to present Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Savior of the world, so that men will believe on him. Turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is one of those great passages where the author just tells you exactly why he's writing. Right? He just lays down exactly why he wrote this gospel. Starting in verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John wants people to consider this sampling that he offers of the incredible deeds of Jesus And to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And 98 times we're going to see that word, believe, 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 believe. Saving faith, belief in the book of John, carries with it the idea of trust, an attitude of reliance on Christ and Him alone. And it is belief in Christ which appropriates the work of Christ, the gift of salvation, the payment for sins, to the person themselves. And this belief is an essential step. It's an essential part in salvation. Not just to leave the person, the work of Christ, 
on the shelf as nice doctrine, as interesting information, but to embrace it and take it to yourself and make your life all about Jesus Christ. One more thought before we jump in. How often, when your faith is lacking, maybe the the faith, even the the faith of a loved one who uh, is an unbeliever, just non-existent faith, or just when, when you know that, that, that you need to strengthen your own faith, how, how often have you thought something like this? If only I could have a sign. If only I could have a sign from God. If, if only God would speak to me. If I could see a miracle. Or if I just could live during the, the time of Christ, you know, like, like you know, time travel back and, and just be with Jesus and see him do something incredible or, or hear him preach. Or have a word from him. Well, guess what? You have, in your copy of the Bible, in the Gospel of John, an eyewitness account. Remember, we talked about this in 1 John. God has spoken to us in his word, and he has given a direct, first-hand account of these incredible things. And this divine man, Jesus... And the question is, will you believe John? Will you place your faith in the Holy Spirit and his inspired word? Don't don't ignore, don't deny, don't rationalize Jesus' miracles away. Even in Jesus' day, people tried to reject his miracles or, or attribute them to Satan. As we come to the word of God and John lays out exactly what he heard and saw, we want to embrace it and believe it. James Boyce says it this way. There are always people who will say that faith is something that must be entirely divorced from evidence. But that's not stated in the Bible. Faith is believing in something or someone on the basis of evidence and then acting upon it. In this case, John has provided evidence for the full deity of Jesus so that readers, whether in his age or ours, might believe and commit their lives to Jesus as their Savior. He goes on. He says, in John's gospel, we have an accurate record of things that were said and done in Palestine almost 2,000 years ago by a Jew named Jesus of Nazareth, and that are presented to us as evidence for his extraordinary claims. If one believes this and approaches the record honestly with an open mind, God will use it to bring that person to fullness of faith in the Lord Jesus as God's Son and Savior. This was John's purpose in writing his, jo- his gospel. James Boyce says it's his purpose in writing his studies, his commentaries, and it's our purpose as we dive into the gospel of John together. We want to see these things, and we want to make sure that we do not remain unchanged by our encounter with John's Jesus. Flip over real quick to 1 John chapter 1. We're not going to start over, don't worry. Okay? I just want to remind you of something, right? I'm sure you remember this. I'm, you know, I, I know Dustin's you know, first sermon in 1 John is still just you know, ringing in your ears, right? So, but just jump over. I want to just see the first two verses. Remember, this is the same author. He says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is the, the message that John has. And what is the message? It's a message about Jesus Christ, about his life, about his ministry, about his teachings. And, and, and John has written this now after five or six decades. And what John saw and, and heard and touched was Jesus. John and his associates, they experienced firsthand the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a, a sense of awe here, a sense of personal witness. And when he says what we have heard, it, it's in the perfect tense. This message has ongoing effect. He can still hear the teaching of Christ. John can say, I was there. I, I heard him. I heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. I heard Jesus teach in parables. I, I heard him say, Lazarus, come forth. He heard it with his own ears. And 60 years after the death of Christ, the impact on his life and John's own teaching, it's fresh in his heart and mind. He says, what, have, what we have seen, again, perfect tense, ongoing impact. How could it be otherwise? MacArthur describes it this way. John saw the whole perfection of the revelation of Christ for himself. He saw it with his own eyes. He was there when Jesus cast demons out of people time and time again. He saw it. He was there when Jesus reached out a hand and helped a lame person up, and that lame person walked away. He was there when Jesus touched the eyes of the blind and they saw. He was there when he put his hands over the ears of the deaf and they heard. He was there when he touched the casket of a young man, and he was there when that young man came to life. He was there. He was there when Jesus called demons out of people and they were delivered. He was there when Jesus walked on water. He was there when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He saw it with his own eyes. This is his own personal experience. And he was there for the fullness, for the completion of what Jesus did. He experienced it firsthand. And so John... Even in the next phrase, it says what we have looked at. John looked intently on Jesus Christ for three years. And John's conclusion is that Jesus Christ is every bit of everything that he claimed to be. And what an incredible gift that we have a copy of John's letter to the world. And we're able to dig in and study it together. Let's look at the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We pack a lot, and, and, and John has a habit of doing this. You'll find as we go through the Gospel of John, John is something of a wordsmith, and he can pack a lot into a little bit of space. We have here what's normally titled, actually verses uh, 1 all the way to, to verse 18, normally titled the prologue. And I thought, oh, what a, what a great title for a sermon. Prologue. Right? I mean, 
You know, you see that in the commentary, or you see that in your, in your Bible. Maybe some of your study Bibles have that as the heading, prologue. Then you just think, snooze fest, like, jump ahead a few verses, skip the prologue, right? But John begins with this theological prologue. I mean, it's different than the other Gospels, no, no doubt, right? Matthew starts with the genealogy of Christ and connects it to David and Abraham, and Mark starts with the preaching of John the Baptist, and, and Luke has his dedication to Theophilus and the birth of John the Baptist, and John has theological prologue. But listen, a good prologue is important, right? It performs a, a function. In a good prologue, there's a, a foreshadowing of events to come. There's, there's background information. There's the, the establishing of, a, of an important point of view, and in some respects, the prologue here is the thesis. It's the heart of this book. As John just lays down right out of the gate the deity of Christ and how Christ was intimately involved in creation and how he's the source of life. And the rest of the gospel is just unpacking these glorious truths. As Lewis Johnson says, that's exactly what John has done. He has written and written broadly, and then he fills in the details in this prologue, and I think that corresponds with the fact that he tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, that what he's doing in the Gospel of John is writing us a propaganda document. <laughs> and I thought, what an odd thing to say about the Gospel of John. He calls it a, a propaganda document. But that's kind of what it is. His, his point is, like, John just tells you straight away. He says, my purpose here is for you to believe. My purpose is to convince you. My purpose is to, to change you, to proselytize you. And so John, again, he aims to convince his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that personal belief and trust in him imparts life. You know, what's incredible, really, is what we have here at the beginning of John is the Christmas story. Did you know that? I mean, it's the Christmas story if, uh, if you took out the, the manger and the stable and the city of Bethlehem and the shepherds and the wise men and Joseph and Mary, and basically everything that you think you know about the Christmas story, right? And we just take all those things out and we just focused on God incarnate. If we just focused on the, the creator of the universe stepping across the stars and enfleshing himself, becoming man for us. That's what we have here. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This first phrase, in the beginning, it should, should trigger some thoughts. It could be a, a couple of different things. There's several ways that the phrase, in the beginning, is used. In fact, in 1 John, uh, he uses it to... to refer to the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. But when you hear the phrase, in the beginning, you think of something right away probably, right? It takes you back to the very first words of the Bible. In fact, the first book of the Old Testament is named in the beginning, right? And notice that what John is here, that, that John is saying that in the beginning, Jesus already was. In the beginning was the word. This phrase speaks to the pre-existence of Christ. The word, the word already existed when creation began. When everything else came into being, when everything else was created, the word was already there. John doesn't say that in the beginning the word began. 
but in the beginning the Word already was. James Boyce says the use of the phrase in the beginning in John's gospel goes beyond even that. For John says that when you begin to talk about Jesus Christ, you can do so properly only when you go back beyond his earthly life, back beyond the beginnings of creation into eternity. That is where Jesus Christ was. And John's affirming that the word existed before creation. And he makes it clear that the word was not created. Christ was not created. He is the creator. Without beginning, without end, Christ is eternal in both directions. Now, listen, eternality is a, is a tough concept, right? I mean, it's like, if I just think about the fact that as Christians, we are told that we have eternal life. I'm already stumped. I, I mean, just to think of the idea of just going on forever and ever and ever and never having an end. And when we've been there a thousand years, right? I mean, we just, we just, it just keeps going. It's mind-blowing. But consider the fact that God is eternal in both directions. He has no end, but he has no beginning. Now I'm really out of my depth. I mean, everything that I know has a beginning. Everything that we experience has a beginning, has a source, comes from somewhere. B.B. Warfield says, What is declared is that in the beginning, not from the beginning, but in the beginning, when first things came to be, the Word not came into being, not so that He might be the first of those things which came into being, but already was. Absolute eternity of being is asserted for the Word in as precise and strong language as absolute eternity of being can be asserted. The Word annotates the beginning of things. He already was. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Speaking of Christ, tells us he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The creator and sustainer of the universe, the man Jesus Christ. Leon Morris said, there never was a time when the word was not there, and there never was a thing that did not depend on him for its existence. It's incredible. Again, think of this in the context of the Christmas story, right? Jesus Christ, creator and sustainer of the universe, baby in a manger. It's incredible. Sometimes I think the struggle is we... We have known these things for so long. We have embraced these things for so long. And frankly, everyone in our Christian bubble believes these things. Like, Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. Well, yeah, right. Jesus is God. Mm-hmm, yep. And, uh, you know, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Yeah, right. And Jesus is a man. Okay. I mean, step outside of the knowledge that you already have. Step outside of these things. Read this in the context of, of the culture. Read this in the context of the, the first time that anyone ever picked this up and, and read this. This is mind-blowing stuff. This is incredible. 
The things that are being claimed, the things that are being said about the man, Jesus Christ? The eternality of Christ in and of itself is a claim to his deity, right? I mean, just like the other members of the Trinity, the Son has no beginning, he has no end. Psalm 93, verse 2 declares the, the eternality of, uh, of God. It says, Thy throne is established from old, thou art from everlasting. Psalm 90, verses, uh, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And we ought to be in awe of the eternality of Christ and, and frankly, dwell on our own days in light of the eternity of Christ. To, to take an eternal perspective and to let our actions reflect an understanding of eternity and of a God who is eternal. Let's talk about another key element here in verse 1. The title given to Christ here is the Word. It's a common Greek word. It's a little tricky, by the way, to, to preach on the word, word. Because you've got to talk about the word, word. The word is word, right? It gets a little twisty, right? The word here is logos. It's translated as uh, message, statement, speech, right? Logos, uh, uh, in its simplest form, it's rational expression. And so think in, in English how this translates over. We have ologies in English, right? That is to say that we have terminology, and if we study the etymology of our terminologies, we find out that ology comes from logia, which comes from logos, and really an ology is just a word for the expression of information about a particular branch of knowledge, right? And so we have words like biology and geology and sociology and one that you hope you don't have to hear, cardiology, right? But then we have things that are very dear to us, like what we're studying this morning, Christology, soteriology, the, the doctrine of salvation. These words are important to us because they are a part of our theology, which is the expression of knowledge about theos, about God. All that to say that in John 1.1, where it's used to refer to Christ, what we're being told is that Christ is the communication of God to man. Christ is theology. And it goes deeper maybe than we might think at first glance. For the Greek readers, they might think of logos as philosophical, a philosophical world word that relates to wisdom and reason, kind of an ethereal idea. Whereas the Jewish readers might think of the word of the Lord. It's a constant Old Testament refrain when, when God sent his message to his people via the prophet. And, and what both are being told here is that in this case, the word, the logos, is a person. Well, this is a new idea. Christ is theology in the form of a person. God spoke by putting on human flesh. Drop down to verse 14, just to make Dustin nervous that I'm going to steal all of his thunder. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. And John is literally saying that in the beginning, Logos existed. Before the prophets, before the philosophers, was the Word, Christ Himself, very God of very God. And now we have this record that He came and He lived among us and His person and His life and His ministry and His miracles and His death and His resurrection are the revelation of God to us through Him. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I know you're familiar with it. Just reiterating here that the Lord is speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest revelation of God to man. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And if we turn to Revelation 19.13, we see Christ in his robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Back in John chapter 1, notice that it says that the Word, so Jesus Christ, the Word was with God. So Christ is in the company of the Father, he's with God. In John 17, verse 5, as, as Christ prepares for the cross, he prays to the Father and he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ preexisted in intimate, face-to-face -face fellowship with the Father. And Christ willingly gave up that position, gave up that place, gave up the, the glories of heaven and, and veiled his own glory and took on the form of a bondservant. Philippians 2, right? Tells us to have the same attitude that Christ had, this attitude of humility where it says he, he took on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then John adds... Not only that the Word was with God, but that the Word, what? Was God. So, I mean, let's just kind of make sure we're on track here, summarize what we've heard so far. If we understand what we've seen so far, what we've seen is that the Word, who is Jesus Christ, is eternal, and the Word is in relationship with God the Father, and the Word is God. Kenneth Wiest, a long time... Greek professor at Moody Bible Institute, this is what he says about this section. He says, the word was God. Here the word God is without the article in the original. When it's used in this way, it refers to the divine essence. Emphasis is upon the quality or character. John teaches us here that our Lord is essentially deity. He possesses the same essence as God the Father, is one with him in nature and attributes. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the carpenter, the teacher, is very God. Wiest has a, an expanded translation of John 1, and, and this is how 
This is how he kind of paraphrases this. He says, In the beginning the Word was existing, and the Word was in fellowship with God the Father, and the Word was, as to His essence, absolute deity. The Word was with God, which means He has a separate, a distinct personality. He's not just an idea or a thought. He's a real person. And the Word was God. So He was with God, and He was God. He not only dwelt with God, but he himself was God. And so we have this incredible, mysterious doctrine of the Trinity. And what we have here is that God was with God. And we can do that because the Bible teaches that there is one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all three persons are God. And in this verse, Two of the persons of the Godhead are mentioned, Father and Son. And it's the first of many clear statements in this gospel that Jesus Christ is God. And until you understand and embrace Christ for who he is, for who he has proven himself to be, and for who he claims repeatedly to be, you miss Jesus Christ. You have a, a false Christ. You have a, a God of your own imagination, of your own making, but not the God of the Bible unless you understand the deity of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to say that he is God-like or that his teaching was divine. The Bible teaches that he is God, and this is such an important doctrine to know and to defend. In every century, in every century that, 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 since the church was formed, the church has been forced to deal with people who claim to be Christians while denying or distorting the deity of Christ. And this, this is a battle that is fought over and over and over again. And sometimes I think we mistakenly believe that, you know, some of the battles like this, they're, they're over, you know, and, and we don't have to worry about it. And aren't we thankful that the, the church fought that battle? And, you know, we won, right? I mean, we're here. But we need to be diligent. Even Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witnesses and others today will tell us that they believe that Christ is a created being. I came home one day uh, for lunch and uh, just uh, excited to enjoy a nice relaxing lunch break. And my wife is on the porch with uh, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses who had stopped by. And my first thought was, well, there goes lunch, right? And uh, as, I, as I approached, one of the young men turned to me and said, your wife knows a lot about the Bible. <laughs> and I said, yes, she does. And I went and had a nice lunch. So I, <laughs> this, is, this is well in hand. This is taken care of. I'm going to go make a sandwich. I'll tell you another story. I was teaching a theology class for our Christian school several years ago. And I'm teaching on the, the section on Christology. And I'm kind of walking the room lecturing and, and, and talking, and something I said caught one of the students' attention. And she kind of had this light bulb moment look. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you who have been teachers, like that, that look that you live for, that like a kid is like, I got it. I just, I just understood something. It's a very rare moment. It happens <laughs> so infrequently, right? But, but you, you just live for it. And, and I, saw, I saw this, and, and she raised her hand, and she said, okay, so... Is Jesus God? And I said, yes, that's what I've been saying. And, and as excited as I was for her in that moment, and as, as much as I enjoyed the light bulb moment, it, it occurred to me 
this student grew up in the church. This student has gone to Christian school every day of her education. And have we failed to declare the deity of Christ? Or maybe she just wasn't paying attention so much. Or maybe it was just the time that the Spirit had appointed to help her really understand and, and grasp this truth. We need to be diligent to teach this to our children so that Christ can be worshipped for all that he is. James Boyce says it this way. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Who is he? According to Christianity, this is the most important question you or anyone else will ever have to face. It's important because it is inescapable. You will have to answer it sooner or later. In this world or in the world to come. And because the quality of your life here and your eternal destiny depend on your answer, who is Jesus Christ? If he was only a man, then you can safely forget him. If he is God, as he claimed to be, and as all Christians believe, you should yield your life to him, and you should worship and serve him faithfully. Folks, we study Christ. We dive into John's gospel and the person and work of Christ because we love him. We are in awe of him. And we worship him and we're desperate to draw, draw closer to him and to worship him as he is in spirit and truth. And so when John says in John 1.1 that the word was God, it matters. Paul Enns says an attack on the deity of Christ is an attack on the bedrock of Christianity. At the heart of orthodox belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for a lost humanity. If Jesus were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. But because of his deity, his death had infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world. It matters that Jesus is God. Without the deity of Christ, the gospel is stacked like a house of cards ready to tumble. Jesus is the theanthropic person. He is theos and anthropos. He is the God-man. Christ, the pre-existent God, became a man. And when, when he did so, he didn't divest himself of a single attribute, but he willingly set aside the independent use of his attributes at the incarnation. He took on the additional nature of mankind, and so he's man to live the perfect life, to be able to suffer and to die for you. And he's God to give his death infinite value. He's man to sympathize with us, to be our high priest, to set an example for us. And he's God to rule and reign and intercede for us. Because he's God, Christ created and sustains the universe he has the power to forgive sin and the right to judge the nations. But also remember that the man, Christ, whom Hebrews calls our brother, was hungry, he was tired, he grieved, he, he, he cried. The almighty creator of the universe who lived heaven, who, who left heaven, lived a perfect life, bore the penalty for the sins of all humanity, and loves you. In Christ, we have sovereign creator of the universe. And, and, and as our creator, 
right? It's, it, it's implied in this, he has a right over us. He has authority over us as our creator and sustainer. And so we're, we're in awe of Christ. We, we step back from the person of Christ. And yet, at the same time, we draw near to our brother. We draw near to our Savior. We remember what John says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's incredible that we can have these pictures come together in the person of Christ. Verse 3. Oh, verse 2. Uh, verse 2 summarizes the, the previous three points. He was, verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. But it's not just a, a repetition. It's a clarification, right? Barrett points out that in verse 2, uh, the, the word does not come to be with God. The word is with God in the beginning. And the word has always been in relationship with God. Christ didn't at some point in time come into existence or begin a relationship with the Father. In eternity past, the Father and the Son have been in loving communion with each other. There's this eternal relationship, eternal fellowship within the members of the Trinity. And in verse 3, he says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And this is one of the big questions of life, right? Where did it all come from? What's it all about? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the answer of Scripture is verse three is, uh, from verse 3 is God. All creation was made by Christ, the Word, in relation with the Father and the Spirit. And John stresses the, the work of the Word. Again, Christ as creator and sustainer. We don't have time to unpack all of these, but 1 Corinthians 8, Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1 and 2, we looked at earlier, right? Just to see Christ as creator. The book of Revelation calls Jesus the Alpha Omega, right? The, the first and the last. What we're seeing here is a crystal clear picture of who Christ is. And we're going to continue to see this in the book of John. The deity of Christ in the book of John starts in chapter 1, verse 1. And in chapter 10, verse 30, we see Christ say, I and my Father are one. In chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was born, I am. In chapter 14, verse 9, he says, He that has seen me has seen the Father. And in chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas gets it. And he says, My Lord and my God. And so Christ's deity is clearly seen in the book of John. And, and again, just to whet your appetite, we're going to see the deity of Christ in his works, right? As creator, sustainer, healer, miracle worker, resurrected savior. He has authority over demons and disease and death. And so we see the deity of Christ in the works of Christ in the Gospel of John. We're also going to see the deity of Christ in the words of Christ, as we just rehearsed. He repeatedly claims the titles of deity and accepts the worship of others. And we're going to see it in his attributes. The Gospel of John alone shows the eternality, the omnipotence, the uh, authority that Christ has to judge. And John is just demonstrating for us what Colossians says, that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In verse 4, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And we're going to see in, in the coming weeks and months 
that John's gospel constantly associates life with the word. Chapter 10 says that Christ came that people might have life and have it more abundantly. Chapter 3, verse 16 says that he died so that we might have what? Everlasting life. Over and over, Christ even calls himself the life. Over and over, we see life in John referring to eternal life. The gift of God through his son. However, we already have this reference in John chapter 1 to in the beginning, right? Which reminds us of the Genesis creation. And we saw in verse 3 that all things were made through him. And so here in verse 4, we seem to be speaking of physical creation. The creation of mankind. And even more than that, let's remember where the spotlight is. The spotlight is on Jesus Christ. And so Leon Morris points out that life does not exist in its own right. Life here is not spoken of as made by or through the word, but what? Life exists in him. It's only because there is life in the Logos that there is life in anything else. And so again, we're looking at Christ's role in the creation of man, giving man life. And then John is saying that the light is granted also. The light is given to men through the life that they have. The life was the light of men. Remember in Genesis, we, we went back to Genesis when we were talking about in the beginning, right? And if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we drop down to, to verse 26, we see the phrase, let us make man in our image. And so we got life from Christ, and that life contains light. Because we are a special creation. Mankind is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei is stamped on us. And even though the image of God is marred by the fall and marred by sin, still we have some light. We have some knowledge of God written on our heart, the law of God written on our heart, a knowledge of, of good and evil. Homer Kent says, All men possess some kind of life from their creator, and their human life provides them with the light of reason and conscience. This light alone is not enough to save them, but it was enough to leave them without excuse, Romans 1.20 says. Let's say this about verse 4. You may have a different take on it. Your study notes probably have a different take on it. But let's say this about verse 4 in particular. However we understand these terms, the compelling conclusion is that Christ is the source of life. All life. And Christ is the source of light, of any kind. Everything here is designed to point to the magnificence of Christ and shine the spotlight on him, and our response is worship. And that's what makes the second part of verse 5 so tragic. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Just as we saw Christ as life, Christ here is also light. Light's used in the Bible as a, as a, as a badge of God, of, of goodness. Christ is said in the Gospel of John to be the light of the world and to come into the world as light. And that anyone who follows him, chapter 8, verse 12, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And people are urged in the Gospel of John to believe in the light. The Greek verb here is translated in the New American Standard as comprehend, but in the ESV and others as overcome, can mean either, uh, either of those words, and, and you'll see both, really both attitudes in the Gospel of John, that even though they're created in the image of God, people will not understand or believe what the Lord is saying. They won't believe what Christ is doing. They won't believe who he really is, and, and as a result, they will oppose him. And so in the darkness of unbelief, the fallen world, along with the adversary, the devil, has opposed Christ. And when we get to John chapter 7, this entire section from, from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 12 basically records the growth of the opposition that ultimately led to the crucifixion of Christ. And the, the word overcome was, of course, you know I had to throw this out because my sons are wrestlers, right? The word overcome was actually used in the ancient sport of wrestling. To overcome was to, to take down an opponent, to, to dominate or submit an opponent. And in this context, what we're being told is that the light of Christ has never been overpowered. The light of Christ is undefeated, and the word will be victorious in spite of opposition. Christ continues to shine. Regardless of rejection, regardless of opposition and persecution, Christ continues to shine. Isaiah describes the coming of salvation as people living in darkness, seeing a great light. And as we close, I just want to remind us again to consider that question. The question that Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16 during a discussion with his Disciples, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And with that question, Jesus Christ confronted his followers with the most important issue they would ever face. And the time had come for them to either believe or deny his teachings. Who do you say Jesus is? Your response will determine your values, your lifestyle, and your eternal destiny. And consider what we heard this morning. Jesus is God, worthy of worship. Jesus is creator and has authority over you. Jesus is the source of physical and spiritual life. And Jesus is the light, a holy God, offended by our sin and a returning judge who will condemn all those who reject him. But Christ is a victorious Savior who provided a way for your sins to be forgiven through his death on the cross. And he's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can transform a life from the inside out. Acts 4.12 says there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so this inescapable question, who do you say Jesus is? He alone can redeem you. He alone can free you from the power and the penalty of sin. He alone can transform you and bring you into fellowship. Will you believe in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, so much here for us to, uh, to unpack, to embrace 
I thank you for listening ears, and I pray that our hearts would receive your word as well. Father, bless us as we go through this gospel together. Help us to fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus Christ every time we meet together and every time we open this book. It's in your name we pray. Amen.